0: Hello, everybody. It's great to see you. It's great to be back. Last time we were here was 20 years ago. Uh, we were Tulsi and I were students down at the College Great Commission Training Centre, and that's where we first met David. David was a lecturer there, and he used to come in and really ground us in the faith. Old Testament survey, New Testament survey. He took us through it, and. Not just because he's sitting here, but we loved David's classes. Now, my wife's here, so I can't tell a lie. So we loved David's classes, and we really appreciated just a very steady, systematic teaching of the Word of God. And I really hope that uh, in our lives, we, in some small measure, resonate all those teachings that happened all those years ago. Just a few months ago, about two months ago, I was in a place called Church House which is close to where we live in Germany. We live in a place called Gudersloe, And about an hour away from us is this church house. Church house used to be a Hitler youth training camp where young men and women would go in and be indoctrinated and they would go on then to lead the new Third Reich who would take over the world, of course, eventually under Hitler's regime. But after the liberation of Europe and what happened there... British chaplaincy took over Church House. It wasn't called Church House then, it's now called Church House, and it's a place of light rather than darkness. And just a couple of months ago, we were having one of our usual value-added soldier courses. That's what we have a couple of times a year in Church House. We get soldiers away from the barrack blocks and away from their normal routine, and we bring them up there for a few days. Chaplains talk to them about military ethics and about morals and how to live as a good soldier from a moral standpoint, but myself and another scripture reader, that's what we're called. We're evangelists to British soldiers called scripture readers. We get our own slots with them where we can tell them about how Jesus Christ changed our lives and how Jesus Christ loves them and died for them and wants to change their lives as well, wants to save them, and not just give them a new start, but a new life to start with. And I was standing there just a couple of months ago. There was about 50 soldiers there. And it was one of those situations where you're standing and you're talking, and you almost take a little step aside and just think to yourself, how on earth did I end up here? I don't mean that in a bad way. I was absolutely thrilled to be doing what I was doing. Because I'm I'm still very aware of the night, I was arrested in Green Island where we were living and was arrested for assault, criminal damage, brought down to Carrickfergus Police Station. I'd been down there a few times before. I was following the path of the older boys on the estate and the policeman there just leant over his desk and said, you know, son, you're gonna be a waster for the rest of your life. I don't know if a policeman would get away with that these days. But that's what he said and in a sense, I don't blame him for what he said because he had seen other young men just squander their life. Just blow it. And I was following in their footsteps. I was following a script of where the estate was telling me to go. But thank God, God can change the script. Hallelujah. Because just shortly after that, at a party at my sister's house one night, around 9.30, 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, There was a a room full of drunk young men, one of them sitting down there, my old friend Alan, who's come tonight. So again, I can't exaggerate. (laughs) We were sitting there having a drink, as we did on a Saturday night, and a knock came to the door, 9.30, 10 o'clock. And I went and answered the door, opened the door, and there's two 15-year-old girls standing there. And they say, can we come in? Now, we're all about the age 16, 17, 18, 19, around that age. So, of course, they could come in. So they came in, and we were expecting one of them to maybe ask for a drink or something. But what they did was to change the course of our young lives. They stood, two 15-year-old girls stood in the center of that living room and told every one of us that God loved us, that Jesus Christ died for us, and that we needed to get right with him. They used terms like born again, saved, told us their testimony. They even did a little drama in the middle of the room for us. And it was all a little bit bizarre, wasn't it? It's all a little bit strange. But they challenged us to go to church with them the next night. And in an attempt to get rid of them, we said, yes, we'll go. So they left and we just carried on drinking. Well, the next day came and as God would have it, There were about seven of us and we were standing just on a street corner and they came along just before the evening gospel service on the estate and they tried to keep us to our promise and of course we tried to back out and say no, but they were very tenacious, they wouldn't give in and one of our little team said, well listen, we're not doing anything else, let's go, we'll have a bit of a laugh. So we went down, it was a tiny little corrugated iron hut, this was a church plant, we walked in, there was about 12 people in the church. And uh, Alan's brother was playing guitar at the front. And we walked in and we kind of almost doubled the congregation. So we're sitting along the back row as you do. Just making a mockery of what was going on. We were pointing at all the hats and just having a bit of a laugh. Kicking the chairs around a little bit. But then the pastor stood up to speak. And when he started, he looked at us all square in the eye at the back row. He was absolutely fearless. And he told us, you are all sinners. And I remember sitting there thinking, well this is a great start. <laughs> but then he went on to tell us exactly what those two girls had told us that even though we were sinners God still loved us because God loves sinners. In fact, loved us so much that he sent his own son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for us. And that he wanted us to give our lives to him. He wanted to forgive that sin. He wanted to give us a brand new life. He wanted us to become Christians. And we all kind of went through the service, went out of the service, and pretended to shake it off as if nothing happened, but something happened. Because as he was preaching, something on a personal level was going on in my heart. I couldn't describe it, but there was something absolutely genuine about this man. He wasn't asking for our money. We didn't have any. He wasn't trying to con us. He wasn't just trying to make us members of a church. There was something real about what he was saying. And I guess to cut a long story short, over the next couple of weeks, the same routine happened. Saturday night, I would still babysit. We would get drunk Sunday night back in the meeting. And all of the time, just hearing about a Savior who loved us, who died for us, and who was demanding that we give our lives to him. And on Easter Sunday, about three weeks later, 1987, four of us committed our lives to Jesus. In fact, one of our friends ended up marrying one of the girls who called. So it was a a good call on her part as well. And I I hadn't lived my life in a very noble way up until then. None of us had, really. And so I wanted to do something noble with my life. And so I decided to join the British Army. And I still think that's a very noble thing to do. And I ended up serving seven years with the British Army overseas and back at home. And it was on my three and a half years back home, I was on guard duty up at the May's prison. And one of the other Christian soldiers who were there said to me William have you ever thought about Sazra and being a scripture reader and I said Darren no not really because I had my own plans. Now thank God the book of Proverbs tells us we can have all the plans we like but God directs our steps and so I remember just brushing it off but three weeks later again I was coming off duty at the maze and this other Christian soldier was coming on duty. He was to join Sazra back then he ended up becoming the church of Ireland vicar and now he's a bishop in Greenland so but he he was trying to get me to join Sazra and I'd said no Darren I haven't thought any more about it he said why don't you speak to the man who's in charge of Sazra for Northern Ireland a man called Jim Moore and I said Darren I'll go and speak to him and really I'm thinking if this gets you off my back I'll go and do it and so that's exactly what I did I went to Jim Moore's house up in Newton Abbey, and I had the intention that I would sit down, have a cup of tea with him, listen to all he had to say, and say thanks but no thanks, and leave the room, and just carry on with the plans that we had. Jim talked to me. He didn't try to recruit me. He didn't try to Entice me in with anything. He just told me the bare facts of what Sazra is. It's evangelism to soldiers. They can send you anywhere British soldiers are, but you don't have to be a welfare worker. You don't have to be a counsellor. You don't have to be a pastor. You are an evangelist to British soldiers. I'm going to share something with you that's going to sound possibly a little bit strange, but it's the only way I can articulate what happened as Jim was speaking with me. As he was talking to me, it felt like I had a fire in my belly, and that again may sound strange it sounds strange saying it but it was even stranger experiencing it I was sitting there thinking what is this and I left wondering if God might be in it went home Tulsi and I were married just about four years at the time and uh, Tulsi being very practical and very spiritual as well I explained what had happened and Tulsi said well let's apply and if God wants us in he'll open the door all the way. We knew it was gonna be a long process. And if he doesn't want us in, he'll close the doors. It's not good advice. That's great advice. And so I thought, okay, I can work with that. So we applied and it took us 15 months to get in. Lots of interviews and high level security clearances and and the infamous SASRA Bible test. They say it's easier to get into the SAS than it is to get into SASRA. Um, I, I don't remember many of the 100 questions they asked. Uh, but you have to set this test on the day of your final grilling interview. And I just remember the first question, and it was this. Who was Moses' parents? Now, I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up if you know who Moses' parents were. But that was the first question, 100 questions like that. But thankfully, God got us through. And then on the interrogation stroke interview afterwards, the first question was, explain justification. Now, this wasn't, this wasn't just a low-level <laughs> interview. But we got through. And Sazra, in their wisdom, decided to send us out to Germany, and so that was from 2001, 2002, and we've been out there ever since, and all I'm going to do is give you a very brief snapshot of what we do, how it's going, some of the characters we've kind of brushed up against, and hopefully a little bit of an encouragement and a challenge to you in the end as well. Just shortly after we got out to Germany, the main bulk of our work as Evangelists to Soldiers is that after the soldiers get their evening meal, around about five, six o'clock, we're out round the blocks knocking on doors trying to talk to soldiers about Jesus. That's the work. Now, we do lots of other things, but that's the bread and butter of what we do. And I remember shortly after arriving there, we, or I went out round the blocks and I knocked on this door, and a young guy, a young soldier, opened the door and he said, How are you doing? My name's Mick, and I'm an atheist but would you like a cup of coffee? And I said, yes, sure. So I went in and Mick, he was Welsh, he wasn't Irish. And I went in, Mick made me a cup of coffee and I'm his guest. So I sat down and Mick for the next 20 minutes told me all of his objections to Christianity. Now he wasn't being nasty. He was being pretty nice actually, but he completely uh, completely refused to accept anything that the Bible might say. So there's no God. Science is the answer. Humanity in time is going to sort all its problems out and all live happily ever after. And so, after Mick had shared this with me for about 20 minutes, I said, Okay, that's interesting, Mick. Can I share a little story with you? And so he said, Yes. Yeah. So I told him my own story a little bit longer than it did tonight and how Jesus not only saved me, but he's kept me, he's kept changing me, and certainly hasn't made me perfect but he changes the little things about our character that God doesn't want. He's faithful. And not only that, I went on to be able to share with him a very simple, clear presentation of what the gospel is. And it took quite a long time, and it was getting late on in the night. And remember, I'm his guest, so... I said, okay, I think it's time to go. And as I was going out, Mick said to me, William, can I share something with you before you go? I said, yeah, of course you can. He said, I'd just like to tell you, I'm only half an atheist now. And so I thought, you know, this is fantastic. You know, Mick, he didn't get down on his knees and say, what must I do to be saved? But something happened. And most of our ministry is sowing seeds. Most of what we do is sharing about the gospel, sharing that Jesus is alive and he's real, he's interested in you, but yet there's a demand on what he says and that is that you give your life to him. Not long after speaking with Mick, I went round just the other corner of his block a few nights later and I knocked on another door. Sazer always said to you, pray before you go out and that's good advice because you'd never know what's on the other side of a soldier's door. And this night... Knocked on the door, and a big guy answered, I mean, a lot taller, a lot broader than me. His name was Jay, and this is the first thing he said to me. He didn't say hello. He didn't say, would you like a cup of coffee? He answered the door, and some of you may be old enough to remember this. Some of you may not be old enough to remember this. But he said to me, as he opened the door, if there's a God, why did Dunblane happen? Now, some of you will remember that a man went in and killed some of the children there. And I said, Have you got five minutes? And he said, Yes, come on in. So, from the threshold of his door and taking about five paces to go in and just sitting down and talking to this guy who's not going to accept a tried answer, I know that. All I had time to do was say, God, help me. And you know, God did help me. And we began to talk about sin, believe it or not. And by the end of the night, I was able to look at Jay square in the face and say, Jay, If your sin goes unchecked, you have the ability to do what that man did. In fact, if my sin goes unchecked, I've got the ability to do what that man did. And you know, Jay accepted that. And he accepted that Jesus came to forgive sin. Again, Jay didn't come rushing into the kingdom. But every time I saw Jay after that, we had a talk about spiritual things. Now, not every door that you knock on is going to initially be a very spiritual conversation. It's just the same in the army as it is outside the army. Sometimes you have to build a little bit of a rapport. And I guess what I say is you have to engage in the small talk before engaging in the big talk sometimes. I was talking to this one young guy, knocked on his door, first time I met him, and he said, I want nothing to do with religion. I don't want you to talk about God or the Bible or anything like that. And I could easily have said, okay, you're a bit of a waste of time. I want to go and talk to someone who will listen. But that would be wrong, I think. And I very quickly realized that all this guy lived for was football. And it turns out he was a very good footballer. He played for the army, not just his corps or his regiment, but for the army. And you've got to be pretty good to do that. So quite a small guy, very cheeky, chirpy, jolly sort of a character. And we would, we would talk about football every time I visited, five, six times or so, every time football. And I have no problem talking about football, especially from a position of strength being a Liverpool supporter at the minute. Um, I've got the microphone. <laughs> Alan Lexman, you. Sorry to say that on a Sunday. Um, and so we would just talk about football. Uh, And one night I called and it was about the fifth or the sixth visit. Now that's a long time of speaking with this young guy because by the time I get back round to his room, I've got to go around the whole regiment. So if it's five or six visits, that's quite a long time. And this night I knocked on his door and he answered and I could see straight away he was pretty downcast. And I said, what is it? What's wrong? He said, I've just found out my father has died. And then he said to me, can we talk? And that just gave us the opportunity to talk about the big talk, to talk about the spiritual things that he wasn't prepared to do up until then. So it's worth hanging in there. It's worth having a coffee with someone. It's worth just listening to someone sometimes if it gives you another opportunity five, six months down the line. But we just don't knock on the doors. We do other things uh, in trying to reach the soldiers. Shortly after we arrived in Germany, Tulsi and I started our home group. Because I've got to say this, Some of the chaplains that we have in the British Army are very evangelical, very mission-orientated. But some of them are incredibly liberal. And if you go to church, you're going to heaven. That's the way they see things. And so we decided to have a home group where if there were Christian soldiers, they could at least during the week come and, not taking anything away from the Sunday, come and have fellowship midweek. And so that's what we did. And we got a bunch of soldiers together. And it was fantastic. We loved our soldiers home group but soldiers being soldiers they'll bring friends along especially if there's food anywhere and Tulsi makes awesome desserts so that's what we did after their evening meal they would come and have a bit of dessert in our house tea and coffee and we would look through the bible together we would discuss it we would pray together and just have a bit of fellowship and one night this young guy came along called Aldo Aldo was an orphan he was orphaned out in Malawi but he made his way across to the UK and under the Commonwealth soldier rule, he was able to join the British Army. Joined the British Army, became a chef and Aldo started coming to the meetings. And Aldo was strange because he wouldn't say a word. Soldiers are normally pretty boisterous. They're not shy. And Aldo seemed to be very shy. Wouldn't say a thing. He would come in. He would have the desserts all right. And he would come in. And during the the discussion about the Bible, wouldn't say a word. Not to agree, not to disagree, nothing. When it came time to pray, wouldn't pray. And even afterwards chatting to each other, he would kind of just stay in the background, not say a word. And this happened week after week after week. And Tulsi and I started to think, I wonder... If he's just coming for the desserts or is he just lonely sitting in the room or something? We don't know. I mean, we were happy that he was there, but we didn't know where he stood. But one night, Aldo came in and we were just getting everyone ready. Tea and coffee was being handed out. People were getting the nice comfy seats before having to sit on the floor. And uh, Aldo came up and said, William, I need to become a Christian. And I said, that's that's right. And he said, I want to become a Christian. And so me and Aldo and another Christian soldier just went into our kitchen. And right there in our kitchen, Aldo committed his life to Jesus. Now what happened was we went into the living room and Aldo did something totally out of character. He hushed everyone. And he said, I have an announcement to make. I've just become a born again Christian. And of course, everybody let out a bit of a cheer and it was fantastic. Now the interesting thing is, as soon as that happened, <clears throat> Aldo changed. So coming from someone who wouldn't say a word whenever it came time to read the bible verses and then discuss it normally I would start off and read a few verses because not everybody likes reading out loud and just I would read a few verses and then say if anybody else wants to carry on read a, a verse or two then someone else can carry on well Aldo started the chapter and Aldo finished the chapter that's no joke and then after that when it came time to pray, Aldo would start praying and about 10 minutes later, he'd still be praying. And it was almost as if Aldo was kind of constantly linked to Sky News because he would just pray about every country in the world, about every situation. He would just pray and pray and pray. But you know what? It was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. God did something in Aldo's life. Changed him. One night we had, because we had a Sunday evening fellowship as well as the traditional military services in the morning, And one Sunday evening, it's just an evening like this, maybe a little bit smaller, and we were just having our normal service, and there was a big guy came in at the back, big bodybuilder soldier, big guy called Lee from Hartlepool, and Lee came in to the back, sat in the back row, and sat the whole service with his head in his hands. And as soon as the service was over, we went straight over and said, how are you doing? It's great to see you here. Is everything okay? I mean, you could see that it wasn't. He said, No, I've just found out that my wife has gone off with another soldier. And he was absolutely devastated. And as tragic as it was, the first thought I had, I remember this, and forgive me for saying this, but the first thought I had was any man who's brave enough to take this guy's wife as a brave man. You know, he was, and he could handle himself, we found that out as well. But we were able to talk with Lee, pray with Lee, and simply because of that little touch of compassion. Lee started coming back week after week, started coming to the house fellowship. And in the solitude of his own room, listening to a gospel CD from someone in Northern Ireland, Lee committed his life to Jesus. Ended up finding a lovely Christian lady, got married, remarried, and have a little daughter now. He's out of the army, settled along the south coast of England, going to a local church. God's been faithful. God's been gracious and good to us. But it's not all success stories, as you know, but we do do whatever we can in order to reach soldiers where they're at. So we do have the home fellowships, do go around the rooms, did have the Sunday evening fellowship, but also as well as that, we've been able to go into the schools in the camps. We work on three camps at the minute, and where there are soldiers their soldiers' families. And so you've got to cater for them. So there are British schools there on the camps. So I can go in to the primary schools and the secondary schools. And I don't know what it's like here in Northern Ireland. I know what it's like in some places in England. But I can tell you, I have absolutely zero restriction on what I say to children and to teenagers. It's an incredible opportunity. So I can go into to the kids and talk to them about Jesus and the cross and the gospel. And no one bats an eyelid. It's fantastic. I can go in and talk to the teenagers and talk to them, or or there's a big screen you can show them YouTube clips and all the rest of it. That's very direct and hard hitting. In fact, the teachers like it that way. And again, when you get a child or a teenager of a military family, then that's a military family represented. And you just don't know where those seeds are going to go. As well as that, we have just recently uh, jumped on a, a new venture there's a garrison health fair, it's called a garrison health fair, twice a year in each of the camps. So I've got three, so we have six of them a year. And that's where all the health bodies come together into the gymnasium of the camp, and they put on a little stall of what they do, a little presentation. So you would have the non-smoking stand The anti-smoking clinic, they would be there. Then you would have the chefs, they would have one, and they would be talking about healthy eating. You would have the the physical training instructors, they would be there doing lots of exercises and and trying to get the guys to exercise properly. Uh, And but then we have a spiritual health stand. And the incredible thing about it is we've got lots of testimony books and everything we can put on the stand. The awesome thing about it is we're standing at a stand. And the whole regiment has to go through every single stall. So whether they like it or not, they're going to get it. And they come, and we have 10 minutes with each group. Now, each group is about 10 or 20 soldiers. And they've got to sit there in nice military fashion and listen to what you have to say. It's incredible. But you know what? The powers that be let us do it. It's a wide open door that God has given to us. But I've got to say, probably the most exciting thing that we do is about once a year we have a big, big mission. And we started this shortly after coming to Germany. And uh, the first time we did it was a real venture of faith It had never been done before. And so I got a man called Alan Mortlock. Alan Mortlock was in a book quite a few years ago now. It was written by Kate Cray, who was married to one of the Cray twins. She wrote a book called The 20 Hardest Men in Britain. Alan Mortlock is in there, but shortly after that, he was radically converted. And Alan now goes around, he's a passionate evangelist sharing his story. So we asked Alan would he come across, he said yes. So we had to get permission at every level because he had a criminal background, he'd been in and out of jail and really been a very, very bad boy. We had to wait for quite a few months of vetting to go through to make sure, yes, he is the man he is. And then we had to get permission right from the highest ranking officers around the camps to write down to just those who would let someone on camp. And so eventually, after about a year, we got Alan over. And Alan came across with three others. Little John, who was about six foot eight, big black guy, bodybuilder, worked on the doors but he was a committed christian and two boxers because alan's day job is he runs a boxing gym in east london and four of them came across now we were praying small little christian community on the camps we were praying and we were trusting and believing and standing and really wishing if i'm honest that if we were able to get about 50 soldiers, that would be, I mean, revival, is it? Well, do you know, on the night, 200 came. It was incredible. So we set up a little boxing ring in a hall, probably about the same size as this. And uh, Alan came in and introduced the boxers, split the crowd right down the middle. 100, you cheer for him. The other 100, you cheer for him. The two boxers came out, the background music and everything. It was really well done. And they, came, they went in, did a three-round exhibition bout, and... Uh, The crowd were absolutely loving it. Now, just after that, Alan jumped in. Alan is wearing a black vest with a gold Christian fish on the front, and he's covered from here up to here with uh, tattoos. I mean, he really looks the part, I've got to say. And he went in, and he told his testimony for about 35 minutes, which when you're talking with soldiers, that's a long time to be talking about Jesus. But you know, they hung on every single word that Alan said, And Alan, he was very brave. At the end of it, he made an appeal. And to his credit, in front of everybody, one of the soldiers says, yes, I want to be a Christian. So a young guy called Woody, he committed his life to Jesus that night. But the interesting thing is, after that one event, I was able to talk to soldiers and have conversations about that one event for about 18 months. And I would really encourage you, if any of you have an idea like that, yes, it costs money, and it does. And yes, it costs time, and yes, you're going to have to pray your hearts out for it, but it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it. Every year we've tried to do something like that. We've had the tough talk team come across. Of course, we're thinking about who would fit in with the military mindset. These are the guys who are the the bodybuilders, the powerlifters, and these are big, big boys. I mean, these are these guys are used to compete for Britain, used to compete internationally. One ex-world powerlifting champion. So. Each time they have come across, three of them have come across, and the, the one main guy who does the lifting, it's incredible what they do, they, they have a set of weights at the front, and there's an Olympic bar, and a few weights are put on each side. He starts telling his story about how one night he was on the doors, and someone came at him, and he took an iron bar to this guy who tried to come at him, and he almost left him for dead. Kind of leaves it hanging there, puts some more weight on the bar, does a few squats and then goes on with the story about how when he left them, he went running out into the night, called out to God, didn't know any Christians and God answered. And God sent other Christians around and he became a Christian himself, then gets some more weight on the bar. I'm not joking. If you go to the Tough Talk website, you'll see this. It's not an exaggeration. By the end, across the guy's back, the Olympic bar is bending with the weight. Now, that's instant kudos with soldiers because they're looking at someone who's strong and who has a story to tell and who hasn't run away from anybody in his life, but who's telling them of a savior who is strong, who's not weak, and who is interested in them so strong that he died for them, and it's just an incredible way of reaching the soldiers. And again, uh, conversations after that last for a long, long time. Just recently, we had a guy called Graham Seed come across, and Graham is a former football hooligan, a big, big guy. Again, in his old skinhead days, he terrorised people. He supported Middlesbrough. He's a tough guy from the northeast, and eventually he ended up getting into drugs, to the point where he wasn't taking drugs, they were controlling him. And it just got worse and worse, to the point where he was living on a park bench in Middlesbrough. And he lived there for about three years, rough. And being out in the elements that long, and being on drugs that hard, his body started to implode. And he was rushed to hospital, went into a coma. was in a coma for six days. They tried to get in touch with his mother to turn off the life support machine. She wanted nothing to do with him, but they said, listen, we need your permission to do this. And she said, okay, I'll come in and we'll turn it off. Christians heard about it. They went to the hospital, pleaded with the mother, can we pray for him? And she said, well, he's going to die. Nothing else is going to be done. Why not? They prayed for him and he woke up. And he woke up surprisingly not wanting anything to do with God, even after hearing the story. But for six months... A Christian that you would never have thought would be able to reach Graham's seed. As Graham says it, and I'm looking up as I say this because I don't know what anybody's wearing. As Graham says it, he says, it was the kind of Christian who wears socks and sandals. That's what he said. <laughs> uh, the kind that I wouldn't have associated with. This guy came every Sunday afternoon after his own church service and told Graham children's stories from the Bible. Because Graham didn't know anything else. Six months would share his little packed lunch with him. And six months of that ended up in Graham committing his life to Jesus. Graham is now a chaplain in two of the prisons he was a convict in. And so when you have stories like that, that feeds into a military mindset. Again, it just has such an impact for one or two days. And at each of those events, we're talking about two, three, sometimes more, two or 300 soldiers coming and hearing a life-changing story. I'll just begin to wrap up. the a little bit of the testimony bit with something that inspired me and I'm really praying that some of you will glimpse a little touch of inspiration from this because it's so incredibly simple. When we had Tough Talk over, and of course they're kind of lifting weights and doing these presentations at a couple of different camps during the day. They're, they're hungry, they're big guys, they need fed. The best place to bring them is an all-you-can-eat restaurant. So that's what we did. We brought them to a Chinese They can eat all they want. We're having a conversation over a chicken chow mein or something. And one of the Tough Talk team says, Do you know all we have got is weights and Jesus?" nothing else. We're not slick. We're not professional. None of us are ordained. We don't have anything. We just have weights and Jesus. See, as soon as he said that, it was like an alarm went off in my brain because I just thought, I have a little bit of background in boxing and I thought, boxing and Jesus. Boxing and Jesus. And there was another scripture reader there. There are two of us out in Germany. The other guy at the time was called Lee. Lee has a very colorful testimony himself. And I said to Lee, Lee, this is going to sound maybe strange, but I think we can do what these guys do. Now, of course, not, well, of course, I could lift the weights, but um, no, but of course, not, not lift the weights. But I, I'm just wondering, maybe a little bit of boxing, you know, Lee, your testimony, I think we could do something. Lee was right up for it, of course. And so... We committed it to God and we prayed about it. A couple of days later, one of the chaplains came to me and said, William, we've got three children being baptized in the church on Sunday. So that's three families. The church is going to be full. Do You think you might have something for them? And I said, I think I might. I think I might. And so first thing I did was I went to see a guy called Kenny, Kenny Riley, who was the coach of the best boxing team in the army in Germany at the time. And I knew Kenny and I went and saw him. I said, Kenny, I need you to do me a big favor. On Sunday, could you come to church and punch me in the stomach? And he said, yeah, no problem. And he did. That's true. And he came. Kenny and I rehearsed it a little bit. And so on the day, it was, it was a great day. It was a church, smaller building than this, absolutely jam-packed with soldiers and their families. They, they would never darken the door of a church, but. You know what it's like for, for baptisms or dedications. They, they come in, and so they were in that day. The chaplain did the three um, baptisms for the children. the a Church of England church, so that's what they do, and handed it over to us. Lee stands up in his uniform, shares about 10 or 15 minutes of a testimony, and then hands over to us. I'm in sports gear. Kenny's in sports gear. And I put on pads, if you've ever seen them, I'm sure you have, um, hook and jab pads are called. So I hold up the pads, Kenny's got his gloves on, and we do a little demonstration. And I'm kind of looking out of the corner of my eye, and everyone's kind of got that look as if what on earth is going on here. So he, he's doing a little demonstration. And then I take the pads off, and I say, okay, Kenny's going to punch me in the stomach now. So don't blink, because he's not going to do it twice. So have a look. And so I turn to Kenny, and Kenny gets ready. Uh, to hit me a punch in the stomach. And it sounds worse than it actually is. If you you breathe out and tense your stomach muscles, and he's got a glove on, so there's padding. I'm 43 now, so I've got a bit of padding as well. And so Kenny Kenny hits me a body shot in the solar plexus, and I turn to those who were in the church, and i just simply say this, we all believe in justice, don't we? And everybody nods their head, yes. I said, so for instance, if someone breaks into your house, And steals all your goods. You want them to be caught. You want that stuff brought back. And you want them to be brought to justice. Isn't that right? Everybody nods yes. I says if you're walking down the street. And someone hits you. Just for no reason whatsoever. You want them to be brought to justice. Isn't that right? Yes. So out from under a chair on the front row. I pull on a pair of boxing gloves. And I tell everybody. I've got a little bit of background in boxing as well. And if we all believe in justice. And we do then I've got to do to Kenny what Kenny has just done to me. Isn't that right? And at this point, the soldiers are starting to get a wee bit excited, starting to nod their heads. And so I, I have the gloves on. Kenny's getting himself ready for a body shot. I'm standing there ready to give a body shot. But I turn to them and say this. There's something even greater than justice. And it's mercy. Mercy. And I turn to Kenny and say, Kenny... That hurt, but I'm willing to forgive you and I offer you forgiveness. Would you accept that? And as I say, Kenny and I have kind of rehearsed it a little bit. So Kenny says yes. He goes and sits down. I turn to everybody and simply say this. Every single one of us has hurt God. Just like Kenny hurt me, we've hurt God. We haven't hit God a body shot, but by the way we think, by what we do, by how we hurt other people. It hurts God. Now, we have all agreed that justice is right. And justice is a good thing. And we believe in it. And the Bible tells us that God is a God of justice. And if that's true, and we have hurt God, it makes complete logical sense that God has got to punish us for hurting him. Isn't that right? And they all nod, because it does make logical sense. I say, but the Bible also tells us that God is a God of mercy. And God prefers mercy in our lives over justice. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus hanging on a cross wasn't just God saying, I love you. There was a reason for it. And as much that he does love us, he took the punishment that every single one of us deserves. An innocent person for a guilty person. Now that means... But the Bible tells us Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's true. But it's like if you win the lottery, which of course you don't do, but soldiers do because they go for the lottery, but you don't. If you win the lottery, you've got a cheque for a million euros or a million pounds. Legally, you're a millionaire. But you're not actually a millionaire until you cash the cheque. Jesus Christ died for your sins. But unless you accept that and receive it, it's going to mean nothing. And i just go on and simply say this. It's something very visual, but we're talking to soldiers who may not know anything about the gospel. I take out a little five-euro note, and I say, who wants it? And if soldiers aren't shy, so they'll put their hands up, and they say, I'll have it. So I say, well, hang on a second, and I scrunch it up into a little ball. And I don't mean to be crass with this. I really don't, or, or very kind of Western, but I put it in the ground and stand on it and pick it up again and say, who still wants it? And the hands still go up. And I've got two cups, one cup of water, one cup of muck. And I put it in the water until it's soaking wet and lift it up so they can see all the drips. I say, who still wants it? And the hands are still going up. And then I dig, dig right down into the dirt so it's absolutely filthy. And say, who still wants it? And the first hand, they get it. And I ask this question, why did they still want the money? And of course, the answer comes back, because it hasn't lost its value. And I just go on to say this, even though these guys are in their 20s and they don't have many wrinkles, I tell them that one day they will be wrinkled, just like that note was. And it doesn't matter how soaked in the things of the world they are or ever will be, or how filthy they are or have ever felt in their past. And we've all felt that at times. They have never lost their value with God. But there's a decision to be made. Will you have the mercy of God or the justice of God? Because justice really in the long run means judgment. But mercy means new life in him. Do you know, after that first presentation in that little church, one soldier recommitted his life to Jesus. Lee and I thought we might get about two meetings out of this. Do you know, we did that presentation for about two years. We were able to share that presentation to over a thousand soldiers over that two year period, many of whom were just about to go out to Afghanistan. The reason I'm sharing it with you is because you've got something. And it may not be weights and it may not be boxing, but it's something. Do you know, if you can bake tray bakes, you can do that for Jesus. And do something with it. Invite your neighbors around and just tell them your story. If you're good at talking to people, invite someone out for a coffee and talk to them. If you can knit, if you can paint, if you can write a card, it's something. And Jesus. It doesn't have to be professional. It doesn't have to be all singing, all dancing. It just has to be that little gift that God gave you. And you can use it. Look at that. Do you know, it's a foolish little thing, getting a punch in the stomach in front of people and there's over a thousand soldiers who have heard that presentation. Just a silly little thing, really. But God chooses silly little things sometimes. So have a think about that. I'm going to close just with uh, reading a couple of verses out of a very well-known story, a very well-known story that will hopefully be a little bit of a challenge to you and it's just simply this. Shadrach, Meshach, And Abednego, you know the story, you know what it's about. And they are living in exile. They're under King Nebuchadnezzar. And they're there trying to serve God in a foreign land. And of course, the great idea comes to build an idol, to build a great big monument for King Nebuchadnezzar. And when the music starts, when the music plays, everybody's got to bow down. If they don't, they're in the fiery furnace. And of course, the music plays. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Refused to bow down. They're touted on, as we would say, and they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And he asked them, Is this true? And their incredible response, Daniel chapter 3, their incredible response is this Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. (coughs) And so Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage, makes sure that they're thrown into the fiery furnace. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, and this is the incredible sight that Nebuchadnezzar sees. Look, he answered. I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. You know the rest of the story, how they're delivered completely unscathed out of the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar promotes them and says, the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, he is God. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of a confession because at a certain time in my own life, Reading that story, my question, which was a very arrogant one, I know that in wrestling with God, and I did wrestle with God about this, was simply this. God, why did you wait so long to deliver them? Why did they have to go all the way through that whole rigmarole to get into the fiery furnace just for you to deliver them anyway? And here was my reasoning. My reasoning was, surely, God, you could have stopped the mouths of those who were telling on them. Or even if not then, when they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar was quizzing them as the most powerful man on earth, you could have had a voice from heaven that would have caused Nebuchadnezzar to see that you are God without them going into the flames at all. Or even if not then, why, whenever they were brought right to the precipice of the fiery furnace, they're just about to be thrown in, you could have sent angels to completely deliver them. And everybody would have seen it, and they would have been delivered, and I'm sure it would have been the same result. It's an arrogant question, I know. But I'll tell you what I've found. I've found God to be most present in the midst of the flame. So when I'm talking to Jay in his room and he's saying, if there's a God, why did Dunblane happen? And I have no idea how I'm going to answer this. I mean, I'll give it a go. But if God could be there and give me the words to say, which he did because I was in the flames that night, then that would be all the answer I need. Or when I'm standing and when we were doing the Justice and Mercy presentations, And I'm standing in front of 100 soldiers and they're sitting there and they're marched in and when they march in, you can feel the antagonism. You're standing there to talk to them about Jesus. They're just about to go to Afghanistan. They've got so many things going on in their head. last thing they want to hear about is Jesus. And you're standing there and you begin to tell them about how Jesus saved you and about how Jesus loves them and wants to save them and how they're sinners and they need to be saved. And how, in the first five minutes, you're battling. But also how, come around the 10-minute, 15-minute point. And I you not, every single time this happened, this was my experience, every single time you're getting to the 10, 15-minute point, and the presence of God is there. And I mean by the end of the presentation to a group of soldiers there's a holy hush. There's no background music. There's no dry ice. There's nothing. There's just them. There's you. But there's God. But when you're standing talking to them for the first five minutes or so you can feel the flames around your feet. And I guess again the reason I say that is because I don't know your lives, but I know life a little bit. And I know that you're probably going out tomorrow into situations which, if you were to take a step into it, it would be like stepping into a fiery furnace. And the easiest thing to do is just say, do you know what, it's not worth it. But actually it is. And the thing is, and you know this to be true as much as I do, you see, if you do take a step into it, And take a step into the flames. Take a step into the broken family. Take a step into the youth group who need a role model. Or take a step into the, wherever you want to go, you can fill in the blanks. But you do it with God. It will be scary. And it might frighten the life out of you. But you'll find God there. Christianity without risk can be very boring. I have no problem saying that because I know it to be true. If you just go through the routine of just coming along to the meetings and do keep coming along to the meetings and just going through the same old, same old without taking a little step out for Jesus, Christianity can become very routine. But if somehow tonight you were to say, God, I'm willing to step into the flames for you. Yes, it's scary. It's scary. And yes, I may stand and knock someone's door and my knees are knocking while I'm knocking. But if you're there, I'm willing to go. And when you come away, you just think, it was worth it. It was worth it. This has been a little bit of a snapshot. I hope it's helped you. And please do pray for the British forces. We're praying that God does a great work with them. All I'm going to do now is just simply pray and then I'll hand back over if that's okay. Let's pray together. Father I want to thank you for this church I really do and I thank you that we were here 20 years ago and we're here 20 years later and Dave and Sally are still faithful still here still serving you still doing all they can do to see a work of God in this town and beyond and we thank you for their faithfulness and I just ask you that you'll give them real encouragements in the days ahead, all that they've got planned Father I thank you that You've touched them with a vision and they're walking in it, living in it. And for all those that they're developing in ministry, I just pray that you'll bless them. Give them cause to rejoice in those that they've seen come through to serving you in great measure. And I really do pray tonight for anyone who may be struggling with the thought of maybe going out and doing something for you, maybe going out and talking about you or going into a broken situation because they don't know the answers. God, would you give every one of us faith to just go back into the fire again. Jump into the furnace because you're there and you show yourself strong on our behalf when we do that. We ask it in Jesus' name.